Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com is my website, and you can reach me through that. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to ever join me for a writing session, something I have something every Saturday morning with my collaborative creative partner, Allegra Houston. It's called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And we gather on Zoom and, and we write every, every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, and that would be noon Eastern Time, and you can figure it out for the rest of the world, wherever you are. Imaginativestorm.com is where you can go to find out more about that. We welcome everyone. The door is always open. And for those of you who have been listening to Twice Five Miles for a while, you know that I have all kinds of guests on. Some are brand new. I've never met them before. Sometimes I have people on I've known a long time. Sometimes I have people on I've, I've had before. Today, I have somebody on I've known a long time, and she's been a guest before. Her name is Arlene Burns, and Arlene is the mayor of Mosier, Oregon, a very small hamlet, village, if you will, not too far from Hood River, about five miles east of Hood River up the Columbia River Gorge in Oregon, and Hood River is about an hour and a half or so from Portland. Arlene has had many different life experiences, all within the professional realm of filmmaking, the world exploring realm, the adventure realm. So Arlene brings a lot to the table, and she's a wonderful storyteller as well. So Arlene Burns, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, Nave. It's it's always a pleasure, and it's lovely to be speaking to my old and dear friend. You've known me as long as I've known myself, just about. Well, I did meet you, I recall, somewhere around 1979 or 80, it seems like you were going to Montreat Anderson College, and you were working in the outdoor business even back then as a student at Montreat, and, and you were starting to lead people in, on little tours and things like that, which ended up being your career for many, many years, taking people out on large expeditions, sometimes small expeditions, sometimes the expeditions were close to Asheville, and other times they were, oh, anywhere in the world. You pick a place, and I guess you've roamed it at some point in your life. So yeah, it's it's good fun to, to have you here. Uh, I would like to start this conversation by having you talk about your hometown, Mosier, Oregon. And what I would like for you to do is to start talking about your hometown by telling us the story of that fantastic guitar you have in the corner. And the reason I bring that guitar up is because I've held it and I've played it. And it's probably one of the best playing guitars I've ever played, I've ever held. And the fellow who made it lives right in Mosier. So Mosier, Oregon, even though it's a small place, has a deep talent pool. So tell us about that great guitar, and then I'll just let you take the story wherever you like. Well, okay. This guitar that I have was made by Paul Lestock, who is a luthier, and this was the 12th guitar he ever made. He was a cabinet maker, among many other things. I think a lot of people out here and everywhere else have 
have defined themselves in a multitude of arenas. And actually, Paul, before he was a cabinet maker, was a a windsurf instructor in Mexico. He became a musician. And then I think because of his talents as a wood crafter, he got into making instruments. And first he made a bazooki and a mandola and some very eclectic instruments with lots of strings. And I bought the first and second ones he made, I think for $50. And then as you can imagine, the first and second ones, he later felt like were they were hack instruments. So he wanted them back. He said, I tell you what, I will trade you both of those so I can put them in a fire for a guitar, which for me was a great coup because I knew how to play a guitar somewhat and I really didn't know how to play a bazooki and a mandola and it had lots of strings and it was tuned very differently. So over the course of a couple of years, he would come and say, I got this piece of maple that's going to be for the back and I have this black walnut and I'm going to use that for the bridge. So I saw this guitar come together from pieces and slabs of wood and eventually he delivered it. It's a small guitar because he said most people don't need some big guitar that's too big for their laps and especially for women. But this guitar made with love and with great skill. I've had many world-class musicians who have happened upon my house or my hearth and have picked up that guitar and very much like you, Nave, They couldn't put it down for the whole time they were here. And I think there's something about it that has a very sweet tune and tone. I have not become a better guitar player, alas, but I do love to have a guitar in-house for all of my more talented friends to play. And so now he has made many instruments. And in fact, the luthier who made this guitar is about to head to Antarctica One of the things he is excited about is now he will have instruments that he has made on seven continents. So that's pretty exciting. That really is. And I remember when I picked up that guitar and started to play it, it looked like a great guitar. I just had no idea it was a world-class level guitar. And I haven't really played that many world-class level guitars. And to me, what made it so exceptional It's designed so that the fingers live on the strings with no effort from the hand. You know, I was just reading about this study at Stanford that just was published about how acoustic vibration will actually create patterns in the cellular tissue in our hearts and how different resonances create different patterns. And I remember something from a long time ago about ice crystals forming differently to acid rock versus Beethoven and how really this sound resonance, this vibration is something that has a tremendous capacity to heal us, to put us in a mood that is appropriate for all kinds of things. So I think that this instrument has that kind of resonance that people are drawn to. I was having a conversation with a cardiologist. His name's Luis, and he lives here in Taos. And we were talking about matters of the heart. In fact, he was on this show a few years ago now, and he told me when we say our hearts are broken, we are actually describing the pain we feel because the muscles in the heart have torn because of the emotional trauma. He said, your heart is in fact broken. 
And when your grieving stops, the loss seems to go away, to dissipate a bit. That's when the heart muscles have healed back. Maybe they still have a little scar, but they're actually healed back. And that fits in with this Stanford study of the music and how the heart rearranges itself. We are so wired together in unison with every bit of our body. In our culture, the heart is the primary organ of feeling of emotion. In China, for example, it's the liver, not the heart. As we think of the heart, they think of the liver. And that's pretty curious as well. Well, wouldn't you think maybe it's all a bit balanced out from a natural point of view and the liver and the heart know each other very well, just like the liver and the lungs and the heart all probably have a little symphony going on in the body, I would suspect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And very much in a way that we are all connected on a microcosm, on a macrocosm. So staying on that microcosm idea for a moment, and you are the mayor of Mosier, and you've been living in this little town, Mosier, Oregon, for some time. And when you were last on this show, maybe two or three years ago, you had just negotiated a settlement with Union Pacific Railroad because the train crashed in your town and destroyed a fair amount of property. And thankfully, it didn't explode like people thought it might. So you didn't get such bad damage, but it was still bad. The microcosm of Mosier, how do you see its interactions relating to the bigger world? What does Mosier look like? How are these things happening in your little town? Well, I think that Mosier, for whatever reason, is a vortex. I mean that in a cosmic way and a practical way. We are actually this transition zone between the desert and the rainforest. And that's because of our geographical juxtaposition between two big volcanoes and these Venturi winds that go from the coast to the desert. So literally Hood River, which is five miles away, gets 20% less rain than we do. So we're a rainbow zone. There's a big anticline and syncline that are, is this place in the river where there's been big geologic events and ironically, Mosier gets a lot of action, way more than its share. We also participate in regional, state, and national and global matters way beyond our scale. If you look at where Mosier is, it's along the Columbia River, next to the Mississippi, the second largest drainage in the United States. And it also has several hydroelectric dams upon its path. Uh, one of the first things that happened to Mosier was when uh, the Bonneville Dam was built, we were flooded and we lost probably 20 to 30 to maybe 40% of our city limits to the greater good of hydroelectric generation by the level of the river rising. Also, a railroad was built and eminent domain bisected our town for the entire city limits and then a freeway was built. And so again, we have in front of our little town before the river, a railroad and a freeway with many lanes of traffic. And then we have the river, which is a, a huge transportation corridor itself with barges coming and going down the river. So even in this sense, we are affected by what happens upstream and downstream is affected by what happens here. The other interesting thing with Mosier is in the last decade, we have experienced uh, several major fires that have 
come to the very edge of the town. Because we are known as one of the windsurf meccas in the world, we have tremendous, wonderful winds that all of us that play in the wind love. But these with fire danger, which is caused by climate change now, where our summer began in May instead of July this year, and so we are in a drought, these winds mixed with the fires create an untenable situation. It's impossible to get these fires out. So now we're in this place of kind of feeling every summer is sort of the Russian roulette of whether we'll make it through the fire season, which is lasting longer and is more severe. How that also affects us, we're in the National Scenic Area, and we consider ourselves the very heart of the National Scenic Area, not the liver. Why this area became a scenic area versus a national park is because there were already towns established within the Columbia Gorge National Scenic Area. So when this protection was established in the mid-70s, the idea was to be able to preserve all the land that was still agricultural and forest land and let the growth happen inside these urban areas. And I think we are the only city that has not asked for an urban expansion because we feel that the nature that we're surrounded by is our great asset and we're so appreciative of it. On one side of Mosier, we are connected by a hundred year old national scenic highway that now is open only for bikers and for pedestrians. And this road was kind of destroyed by when they built the freeway because here's the new great road. And now it's being rebuilt all the way from Portland. So in another few years and and $20 million later or whatever, there will be a way to bicycle or walk from Portland all the way to Mosier, through Mosier and to the Dalles. So it's pretty spectacular to be right here in the middle of this gobsmackingly beautiful place that has basalt bluffs on both sides of the river, two snow-capped volcanoes that, you know, I used to live in the Himalayas and there the mountains are markedly higher than Mount Hood and Mount Adams. But the juxtaposition, I mean, here in Mosier, we're at 100 feet above sea level and Mount Hood is nearly 12,000 feet. So I'm looking at 12,000 feet of gain. And in Nepal, you know, you don't even look at that much gain almost from ever space camp. It's uh, pretty remarkable to live with these strings of volcanoes that uh, hopefully don't erupt anytime soon and be part of this life that's coming by us. And I always used to say about Mosier that we were lost in the creases of most maps because most people had passed Mosier and they might have blinked and didn't notice. We have enough action that's happened here. And now I think the state has really appreciated how we've stepped up. We have just gotten funding, uh, another $750,000 of funding for one of our projects, which is a net zero, 10,000 square foot city hall, fire hall, and community center, which has kind of been the vision of the town for a long time. We've gotten money from the railroad that we're putting towards that. We've gotten money from the state, and we actually have 1.5 million ask through the federal congressionally directed spending through our senators Merkley and widen that we're hoping we will hear good news about in September. So, you know, people are like, well, why is such a tiny town need such a big project? And it's like, we are serving way beyond us. The other day, this just think of the visual of this. Our volunteer Mosier Fire Department was defending the Google Data Center in the Dallas. 
and accidents that happen on the freeway that are passing by. How many cars go by on I-84 in both directions on a daily basis? Is it 20,000, 10,000? A lot, but we are serving them if they wreck or cause a fire or crash. And so, you know, we participate on the larger level. The other big stream of people that we take care of here is uh, the tourists. And there was a huge fire inside the National Scenic Area several years ago, and it pushed a lot of the tourism from Portland out into our area. And, you know, we don't have public bathrooms. We've just gotten funding for two high-speed EV chargers from our utility company. We've gotten funding from the state for outdoor bathrooms and bike hub and solar bike chargers and a plaza that will all be on the surrounding area of this big net zero center. And if you don't know what net zero is, and you probably do, but maybe some of your listeners don't, the concept of net zero is the building is able to generate all the power that it uses. So you have no electric bills. It's mainly about smart design. It's, uh, it's having enough insulation and being smart about airflow and about how some spaces might be heated or cooled in zones. So you're not heating or cooling a 10,000 square foot building when maybe you're just using the little city office part. So a lot of it is smart design. And then also this building will have solar panels. And the concept is there won't be an electric bill for this building for you know forever, as long as the building is here. So it's pretty exciting. And again, these are big ideas that have come from elsewhere that we are able to incorporate. And we really want to be an example, a template for other communities, small and large, that you can build something that is sustainable, that is on the principle of a path forward. We are going to be, be way beyond what code is, but it should be in another couple of years, codes will require this. So it's it's pretty exciting what's going on here. You are the mayor and you're in a small town and you've just described governance, the way this small town is governed. The government governs the small town. And so many times I hear people say, I, I don't trust the government. I hate the government. I think the government is trying to do this to me or that to me. And when I hear that, I often think, well, we govern ourselves all the time. We govern our households. We govern our lives. We organize things. So I'd love for you to continue reflecting on government and how valuable it is and some of the experiences that you've had as a mayor of a small town. Interestingly, there are many towns in the United States that have volunteer governments, and Mosher is one of them, meaning the mayor, the city council, we are not paid a dime, nor are we able to make a penny on anything to do with the city, because then that would be graft or corruption. Really, it already starts with people who are engaged and care enough about their communities to, to get engaged for no personal benefit. We're all elected. I am now on my fourth term as mayor. It's two-year terms. So, and I was two years city council before that. So I'm coming up, it'll be 10 years of public service for free, for the goodness of my heart. That's pretty amazing that this really happens. And sometimes it's funny, I'm on these calls with other bigger cities around the state 
And they're like, well, our planning part department hasn't gotten to that yet. And Mosher, we're already three steps ahead and we don't even have a planning department. We're able to do these things without even having these big staffs because we have an engaged population. And I feel really lucky right now that our city council is aligned. Uh, let's see, on our council, at one time we had all women and now we have a balance half and half of men and women. We have people ranging from their early 30s till their nearly 70s. Since I run the meetings, I've really tried to be very skilled at how I run them so the meetings don't run us. So I think it's very important to be respectful of people's time. And so my meetings end when the meeting's supposed to end. They don't go on till 10, 30, 11, or midnight at night. And that's partially me going, I respect these people who are volunteering. We try to get public input or always have a place for public input. All of our meetings since COVID have been on Zoom. This has actually been a great godsend to me because last winter and I'm planning for this winter to actually be down in Baja. And ironically, I can run the city meetings and make decisions, not even being sitting in my house. I could be anywhere in the country or the world as long as there's good internet. This really also enables a town the size of Mosier to be able to have a functioning group of volunteers because, excuse me, they're not paying me for this job. So then to tell me I can't leave the town or leave the country to do whatever it is I want or need to do uh, would be a little problematic at this point for me because I, I need to get out of here in the winters. The other thing, we have been very involved in climate efforts nationally and internationally. And I was invited to Chicago and I signed the Chicago Charter, which was basically agreeing to the Paris Agreement when our former president had had exited from the Paris Agreement. There was a group of mayors from around the country that said, OK, we're still in. It was curious because at that time we all realized that a lot of this decision making about governance like you're talking about happens at the local level. Like we have a lot of latitude, we have a lot of power. So with this group, Climate Mayors, we really started becoming a formidable group that I think now represents about 80 million Americans. One of the latest things, Mosier has just signed a pledge with the Biden administration that we are all in, basically saying we're committing to uphold the Paris Agreement and work in every way we can on our local level to curb emissions, to be part of the solution versus part of the problem and look at other ways of doing things. So one of the projects that we just got full funding for, which I'm super excited about, is uh, 2.5 million. And this is some of that congressionally directed spending that was flying out of Washington that you got to figure out how to put your hand in the air and catch the fly ball. And that's what we did. And fortunately, we were prepared enough because about a year and a half ago, my city manager and I were like, hey, man, this is our dream. Let's get rid of that direct outfall pipe from our sewage treatment plant that goes into the Columbia River, right where everyone recreates, take a hard left on it and make a tertiary wetland treatment that where the earth will help do the treatment and it will keep the river from having warm water going into it and... Um, and so we were already sort of down the road on this. And because we had already had the vision, we got the funding for it. 
So that's pretty exciting when you think we're going to have EV charging station, we're going to have a tertiary treatment, we're going to have a net zero building. So our whole town is really coming on board, shape-shifting ourselves to face the future and to be able to deal with the ever-present fire danger that our region is suffering. Would you mind telling us how many people live in Mosier? Well, from the last census, I think we're about at 480, 480 individuals. Yeah. And then in the fire district, which is the watershed of Mosier, we have about 2,000 people. So you have almost 2,500 people in this community, and you're the mayor of Mosier with 480 people, and yet you are able to have such a large world vision and set examples for population areas much, much larger than yours. What's the town's motto? I think I know that as well, but tell us. It's small enough to make a difference. And, uh, you know, one of my inspirations was when I went to Chicago and the mayor of Chicago at the time was committing to doing these things and the mayor of Los Angeles. And I was like, man, you know, if those guys are committing with all the problems that they have in their cities and the population, it's got to be easier for us to make that commitment than it is for them because we're light on our feet. And again, I think something about it being a volunteer government is it really does keep it pure. I, I probably now spend maybe 30 hours a week, maybe sometimes more, sometimes less, but probably 30 hours a week, almost a full-time job dedicated to something about this town. And then I get calls all the time from people outside of the city limits that maybe lost a goat. Actually, there were four sheep that went missing. There were goats on the loose that needed to get off the road. And they're not even in my district, but I went and helped. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a call from the ER in the Hood River saying, hey, we picked up somebody and we don't know who he is. Can you help us figure out who this person is? They're unconscious. And I ended up spending seven hours finding out who that person was in the hospital that was not even in the city limits, but lived about seven miles from where I do. And by the time I figured out who he was and how to get in touch with his next of kin, he was no longer alive. And then I spent the next while trying to figure out how to help his brother get out in a snowstorm to get to identify the body of his brother. And, you know, you just do this. And I would do it whether I was mayor or not is the truth, but I'm called a lot because I am sort of the hub of information and maybe it's my nature. I've always been sort of a conduit for knowing how to put people together that need each other. So in this role, I think I'm fairly well suited for creative problem solving. And, and that's kind of from guiding and from filmmaking. That's all that is, is dynamic logistics. It's figuring out what's wrong and finding a way. And sometimes government feels very slow because you need to go through this public process, which can be excruciating. And right now, for example, we're trying to raise money now for this $6.5 million building. And we have a lot of people who not only aren't participating, but they complain about everything. So it's hard to stay patient sometimes with the ones that really like to complain and they don't like to participate in a useful, helpful way, but I think they're just geared differently. So what I'm working on now is my own patience of, you know, understanding 
okay, I got to figure out how to bring you on board. And that's a whole nother job I'm not paid for because it's just easier to do it yourself and get it done. And that's that difference of government. You've got to bring the public in and bring them along and deal with all the naysayers and then choose whether the naysayers have enough of a voice that it changes a decision or to move on having heard the naysayers. So that part I'm looking forward to not having to do anymore once I'm no longer mayor and back to my personal life where I'm not publicly scrutinized. That said, it's pretty exciting. It's a very exciting time here in Mosier. You've done a great job. I've known your work in government since you started it, and I know now happy you are with it. And I've always admired your leadership ability, and I've seen how you've brought your global skills home to Mosier. You referenced earlier in this conversation, Everest Base Camp, saying how the mountains in your area, in Mosier, are rise higher and are more majestic looking because you're looking from almost sea level up to the very top. Now, a lot of people who would reference Everest Base Camp would be doing that as a metaphor. Oh, Everest Base Camp. I might imagine how that would look. You, on the other hand, have visited that location. I would love for you to spend a little time talking about the broader world that you've experienced, starting with your experience on Everest Base Camp. And tell us a bit about your history, because I think it's so important that people understand that whatever they do, wherever they go in the world, they can take all of those experiences, all those credits, if you will, and transfer them to the moment, to the now. And Mosier, tiny little Mosier, is its own Everest. Reflect a bit on that, Arlene. Well, okay. Um, I was born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina. As you said, I went to Montreat College, and then I graduated from the University of South Carolina. And until I graduated, I'd really not been out of the Southeast of the United States, except to a trip to Colorado. And I had an incredible curiosity to understand what I didn't know. And I was also really fascinated to see how I would define myself in a world that didn't know me. Take away everyone who knows you and you are in an entirely new environment then who am I then? And I don't know why I was so curious about that. But after I graduated from college, after about six months, I bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand and I had 600 bucks in my pocket. And I had a degree in geology and I was a river guide. That was something I did in the summers and on the side when I was also in school. And I ended up moving to New Zealand and I felt it was a safe place because it was English speaking and small enough. And there were some bumps in the road, like they didn't want to hire me originally because I was a river guiding girl, but we worked through that. This gave me this understanding of how little I knew and how much there was to learn and how curious I was and that it was okay to be in this journey by myself. And it wasn't that I necessarily wanted to be by myself, but I could never find anybody that wanted to go with me in a practical sense. I don't know how many trips I've planned to Europe when I was a kid and everybody that was like, yeah, great idea. Then one after another, they would just lop off. And I, and so for New Zealand, I was like, if I really want to do this, I've got to have the courage to step it up. And then as anything, you know, do the thing you fear the most and you experience the death of fear, you get out there and you travel in the world and you realize, wow, 
there is something incredible about the vulnerability of traveling that enables hospitality left, right, and center. And yes, there are some notorious things that you can stumble upon, but there are magical things that you stumble upon as well. So New Zealand was sort of the, the first test. And from there, with my Kiwi boyfriend, who probably you met at some point, Nave, I imagine, we headed through Southeast Asia and to Nepal. And ironically, I had been working for Nantahale Outdoor Center, not far from Asheville, before I left the United States. And I think I'd been in Nepal for one day when I got telex, perhaps, from the the uh, president, the owner of Nanahela saying, hey, we have some clients that are coming to Nepal that want to come, but there are only two of them, so we can't afford to send a guide. Would you guide these two folks up to Everest Base Camp and down the Sunkosi River? And I was like, Ooh, okay, I don't know anything about anything, but here I am. And I, I have always responded in my life when people trust me beyond what I should be trusted to make sure that I knock it out of the park and don't defy their trust. So my first trip to Everest Base Camp was with two clients that were both doctors from Atlanta, Georgia. And ironically, they had been a couple, but they broke up in Bangkok on the way to Nepal. So one of my secret goals was to try to get them talking to each other because they didn't even want to eat in the same restaurant for the first several days. So we went up to Everest Base Camp, and ironically, it was my first time to that kind of altitude, and I had some real problems with the altitude. I remember at 14,000 feet at the Tengboshe Monastery, my heart was at 140 beats per second, per minute, not second, lying in my sleeping bag before I sat up in the morning. That's not good. So by the time we got up a little bit above, there was a peak above Everest Base Camp that's kind of laterally, it's kind of up instead of forward, called Kalapatar. And I was having some serious problems then. And the problem was also I was leading two people. So it's hard when the leader is kind of flailing. And I, I asked my Kiwi boyfriend to stay with the clients. And at about two in the morning, I headed back down from base camp down to a medical clinic, back down at about 14,000 feet. And by the time I got there, I'd fallen through the ice. I was wet up to my knees. I got to their door and I'll never remember, there was a sign on it saying closed for Monty Rimdu, which was a little festival. And I just collapsed right in front of that door. And then a Sherpa woman took me in, got me nice and warm, gave me some tea and just the difference of being back down 4,000 feet lower was the difference of me then feeling fine. So that was pretty daunting. Then after that, I took this medicine called Diamox. If doctors need to fly up to altitude quickly to rescue someone, they usually take it. The next time I was at Everest Base Camp, I was playing hacky sack at 18,000 feet. Basically, that Diamox enables your blood to be more oxygenated. So that was all the difference. And you know, I had had some pretty bad head injuries before I was in Nepal, and I felt like something was happening with the pressure from the altitude that was kind of affecting the head injury uh, scars, maybe. And ironically, you know, I'd had this really loud ringing in my ears since the biggest of the head injuries. And after coming back down, it was like, you know, it got depressured. So the ringing kind of went away. 
So that was my first experience in the realms of Everest. And I don't want to take away from the majesty whatsoever of Everest from base camp, because one, there's a Himalayan range, which is very different than one sole volcano sticking up. But truly the difference of the top of Everest from base camp is the same as Mosier to the top of Hood. It's that same about 12,000, well, it's even, even more from here to the top of Hood. Anyway, that led to me just falling in love with Nepal and the people and their gentleness and kindness. And really for the next 10 years, I stayed based in Kathmandu and either rented a house or stayed with a friend. And one thing about being a guide, I'm innately an outfitter, which is sort of a mother in a lot of ways, because you want to have things for everybody in case they need stuff. So first of all, I was buying equipment from people that were there and then leaving the country again. Pretty soon I had amassed, I think I had 15 kayaks. I think I had several rafts. And then I had all the life jackets and the helmets. I had everything anyone needed in case they came to Nepal. And so then I took uh, mostly Americans on these usually 30-day trips that would include a trekking element, sometimes a slight climbing, not Everest, but maybe a trekking peak. And then by our own means, we would go from base camp or wherever down to a river where we could put in and then maybe 180 more miles by the river down till the plains of the Terai. So what an incredible way to see a country and to get to know people. And I feel so fortunate now. It's, it's hard to even imagine how many people could take off for a 30-day trip now. Most people can't even imagine if that was all their vacation for the year, putting it into that. But I made lifelong friends of these clients. And then I would work the guiding season in other places in the world on the off-season in Nepal. And then I also spent the winters in Thailand for about 10 years on this little beach. And that was my quiet place in a little area called Krebi, where I met Lampoy and Tapai Boon that now live here and have a little Thai food trailer here. I met him when I was 24 years old and on a beach in Thailand. So, so then I worked in the Soviet Union while it was still the USSR and guided sort of peace missions on the Mongolian border. I worked in South America, pretty much have paddle, will travel. And a lot of that was dynamic logistics. Okay, here we are, everybody. It's time to fly. And then, oops, there's no plane because the king barred the plane. And now you've got to talk these folks into getting on a 30-hour bus ride instead of a three-hour flight. And it's all part of the adventure. My nature was well-suited for it because I'm an optimist with regard to let's make the best of whatever it is that circumstance plops upon us. Who's to say good or bad if that's the worst or the best thing? Let's just take this information and do the very best we can with it. And that's the same I'm doing here at the city. You told me a story once about being stuck somewhere north of Japan on a Russian island and coming across a general in a tank. These were the Kuril Islands, which were taken from the Japanese during the final hours of the last world war. I took a group of Japanese uh, to these islands. They were the first Japanese and the first American that had been there in 45 years. And we climbed a mountain and put a little flag up. One of the funniest things that happened on that trip, our Russian who was helping us, we were hiking along the coastline and he said, I'll meet you guys later. And I was hiking with these Japanese. And what do we know? This tank 
is coming along down the beach, you know, with those whole tractor tires that tanks have. And the Japanese were a little bit more fearful. Uh, and I was trying to convince them everything would be okay. So they were all standing behind me like I was some big oak tree. And I was like going to be the Tiananmen Square person. I was going to protect my people. And this, this tractor tank came and stopped right in front of me. And, you know, I was right ready to take the shot. The trap door opened on the top and it was our Russian friend, Timofey. And he had gotten this tank for two bottles of Jack Daniels. We owned it now. It was our tank. So that became our shuttle vehicle for the rest of our trip. That was the story I think you were thinking. Remember that story from years ago. You have so many of these stories, are, and they are just fantastic. And all of your stories, even though they're your personal stories, you did this or that, Every story I've ever heard you tell, it includes a large community of people. None of this happens because of Arlene Burns. All of this happens because people gather around to explore and maybe expand on their curious nature. And that's what I've always enjoyed about Everything you've you've done. I know you've explored unrun rivers and you were the director of the Telluride Mountain Film Festival for years. And and you have been in and out of Asheville on and on. And you also spent some time in in Taos, New Mexico as well. So it's just a really wonderful thing to think about community and how that works so well for anyone who would like to show up and volunteer to do what they naturally do anyway, which is just be part of a group of people and try to make some kind of wonderful contribution. No different than the fellow who contributed the guitar to your house. And now the people come through, many of whom you knew all over the world, and they pick that guitar up and play it. So in a sense, this is all a collective song, I think. That's a nice way to put it. I have some drums here, too, that are very nice. And they were actually made also by a local friend, and they're tunable drums. That might be my instrument of choice, but I only usually play it all by myself with some music cranked up, but something very rhythmic like Paul Simon. You know, I like to kind of challenge myself. One of the things that really influenced me originally into getting into public service like this was when I was in Thailand, uh, and this was back when I was maybe 24 years old and in the hill tribes. Basically, if you were in the village and if you were the, the head of the village, the chief, that meant that everybody that came through town, you were the greeter and you put them up, you know, because there weren't hotels. So I'm like, OK, I put people up anyway. And then the other thing was that there was a feeling that the people wherever you lived, you took care of that land not just your personal land, but the collective community land. And for example, a road or a trail, the community would take care of it and they would extend out their care till it shook hands with the next group that took care. And there was a feeling of that that was an obligation and a responsibility and an honor and a duty and that it was something that was traded around. I always loved that concept um, and felt like wherever I live, I should participate in the health of the community versus complain about what isn't there. I do think it does help to have some people that have a little global vision and bring it back home. 
And I do think that Mosher is a little bit lucky that I'm able to give the amount of time that I have and inhale and exhale from global to local, local to global. That's really how we all are. It's like this mycelium. And I do think probably my reason to be is rather fungal. <laughs> like this mycelium, it's a connector, it's a conduit. It has to connect with all levels of things and it has to be holistic in its completion or else it doesn't work. So it's a fun project and I'm, I'm on my waning things. I mean, I don't want to be mayor forever. I feel like I want to get these projects funded and completed to where I'm not handing off all of the things that I've sort of started until they're in a place that will ensure their success. And then it's going to be, I'm going to have a, a lot of time on my hands. So it's like, then what is next? You know, what's this other thing to do? And I don't even quite know what that will feel like yet. But uh, I think I've got a couple more years before we're, they're finished with me here. I imagine that you have, I imagine you have more than a couple more years. I would be sad to think you left the, mayor's office of Mosier, but I know you have to do it at some point. In closing, how are you managing the pandemic in Mosier? Well, right now in Oregon, we have a big surge of the Delta variant. So things are shifting back to um, a more restrictive mode than they have been. Uh, We don't feel it more than so much here because we don't have that many indoor public spaces. Our restaurant, ironically, it would be open more, but they can't find staff. And I think that's been happening all over the United States. When restaurants wanted to open back up, there was this lack of people who, who were raising their hand to apply. But the restaurant has already done a great accommodation to seat people outside. And even though now... The latest from our governor is if you're outside and with more than 10 people, you need to be wearing a mask. So that's just changing that. It's interesting in Oregon, we have, alas, along partisan lines, mostly our vaccination rates, the the more conservative communities are less vaccinated and the more liberal communities are more vaccinated. And we're all dealing with the consequences, whether you're in the liberal or the more conservative one of the hospitals are, I think we're at um, 97% capacity as of today with ICU units in the state. And we've got the National Guard coming in to help deal with people and test for COVID because we're just really back at a place that was in a lot of ways, worse than the peak of the pandemic last winter. So it's hard and it's daunting. And, you know, on one side, people are like more restrictions. And on the other side, our representative, who is conservative, has just sent a big letter saying, you know, how dare the governor say that state employees need to be vaccinated? You know, so there's still a lot of misinformation out there. I think we all just have to, one, have good sanitation habits. And maybe for myself, having lived in the third world half of my adult life, where the surfaces were not so clean necessarily, I got into better habits myself of washing my hands very often and of not putting my hands on my face and those sort of simple things that other people are starting to adopt more in this country. But yeah, I I don't know what's going to happen. I do think that 
we're better laying low and staying in a quieter place. And I think there've been a tremendous amount of gifts that have come out of this experience on individual and societal levels that have made us be families again and live with our families again. I think coming out of it, people don't necessarily want to go get back on the train that they were on because they've had time to reflect maybe what's even more important in life. And the other thing is for kids coming out of college or going into college, you know, there's so much uncertainty about the future, but guess what? There's always been uncertainty about the future. Change is the only constant. So maybe there's something really valuable about like, for example, you know, I'm still holding a ticket to Italy on September 9th that I probably will not go on that plane. And that's okay for us to be able to let things go instead of because I planned it, it has to happen. It's not to do with us, it's external circumstance, but to be able to navigate that external circumstance in a way that enables us balance. And I do think it's calling for a simplification for all of us and a redirection of what are our priorities and what's the most important thing to our family, to our lives. So I think because I'm an optimist, I always do look for what the positive might be despite the negative. And it doesn't take away from all the people who have gotten sick and died. But I do hope that this enable a shift in our societal thinking in a way that might enable us to find a, a more sustainable path forward. Well, Arlene Burns, that's a wonderful note to close this conversation on. This hour has zipped by. I wish we had more. And you're the, this is the second time you've been on Twice Five Miles Radio. I, I hope you'll agree to come back for a third time. I would love to keep this up. So thank you so much for all of this. You are so welcome, and it's always a pleasure, and I, I love what you're doing and how you're doing it, so thank you for contributing that to our community and our world. You're so welcome. And there you go, Arlene Burns, mayor of Mosier, Oregon, with the catchy motto, small enough to make a difference. I've always enjoyed Arlene because she tends to have that optimistic view of the world, even under circumstances that are a bit... Um, testy. I once went down a river with Arlene. She was leading a rafting trip. I think it was in northern Georgia. I don't remember what the name of the river was. Arlene was leading the trip, as I said, and we approached one of those places in a river that requires some decisions. The river was white water. It was roaring. The rocks were all around. And Arlene had to figure out how to get the raft around the the obstacles in front of her and it was a remarkable thing to watch Arlene inspire the group get everybody out of the raft encourage the people to take the raft and and portage the raft around to the other side of the waterfall put it back in the river and and keep on moving so when Arlene came upon the obstacle in the white water it was not an obstacle as much as it was an adventure and I've always liked the way Arlene thinks of obstacles as adventures rather than problems or blocks. 
Now that I think about it, I believe it was the Chattooga River we were going down that day. The Chattooga River is a big river in Georgia and very popular with kayakers and rafters, and certainly we had a, had a great time that afternoon. That run we made down the Chattooga happened a long time ago, and Arlene was much younger than she is now, as we, as we all are. And yet her optimism, her willingness to see the, the obstacles in the river and then figure out how to get around them, her enthusiasm, joy at trying to figure out the problem still remains with her to, to this day. And in the interview, I asked Arlene about government and brought up the question of why people often will say, I don't trust the government or I, I hate the government. And when I hear people say that, I often wonder, well, what do you mean by the government? Those comments often suggest to me that something is going on that's unseen, impossible even to see, way beyond the control of, of individuals or, or small groups. So I am so glad that Arlene talked about governance from the, the small point of view, from the hands-on point of view, from the she can do something about this right now, like let's help those people find their sheep, or I'm going to take care of this goat until the farmer comes and picks it up. Taking care of the goat until the farmer picks it up is a good example of how anybody can do something to add to the, the value of the community they live in. And it does seem to be true that when something happens in a community, the citizens of the community come together and try to take care of each other. Now, I also want to say here, I'm not coming at this from a naive point of view. I've been studying international politics for years. I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in international relations. So my eye has always been on the small things as well as on the, the large things. So I understand very, very well how governance works on the smaller scales and on the larger scales. And I also understand how governance can go awry, how things can get off the beam. You can probably think of many examples yourself where governance didn't quite work for you or the community you live in. You can also conversely think of times when governance worked very, very well for you. I once took a wonderful political science course from Dr. Bill Sabo, who was teaching at UNCA, University of North Carolina at Asheville, and the course was titled Causes of War. And in the course, Bill Sabo gave us the final exam on the first day of class. He walked in and said, there are three causes of war, individuals, state anarchy, and bureaucracy. We're going to look deeply at all three of those causes, and at the end of this course, I'll ask you to write an essay, choose one, and argue why you think it's the cause of war. Dr. Sabo's course was rigorous and demanding, and we had to write essays and read books deeply and discuss the ideas in, in the books, and it went on and on for an entire semester. When we first started, I thought individuals caused war, like the assassination that started World War One. I. I never really thought state anarchy caused war, although I could see how you could argue that. And then, of course, there was the bureaucracy. 
idea of causing war. And what finally convinced me bureaucracy actually caused war was the story that somebody told in the class about Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, the important message comes through. A functionary at a desk gets the message. It sits on the desk rather than getting passed on up the chain because the functionary had to go early and meet a friend for drinks. Something really simple in the bureaucracy that would bog down an essential piece of information that would make the difference between making choice A and choice B. So I finally concluded that it's bureaucracy that causes that causes war. You may have a different opinion. I bring this up because Arlene gave us a good example of how in Mosier there is no war. Nobody's fighting over the goat. In fact, Arlene, the governing mayor of Mosier, is hanging on to the goat till the farmer comes. So all of this is to say that on the small scale, governance actually works really rather well. And I love the way Arlene demonstrated that in our conversation. The conclusion, of course, is you can make a difference and you are as much a part of governance as, as anybody else. So the next time you see a goat wandering past your door, don't hesitate. Take it in and hang on to it till the farmer comes by to pick it up. And on that note, I'd like to say thanks ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I really do appreciate it. If you would like to ever join me for my writing gathering on Saturday morning, please feel free to do such a thing. ImaginativeStorm.com. We call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week and would surely love to have you join us. The door is always open. You can reach out to me at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And that's it for now. Thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.